Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, as I am each and every month, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Craig Joseph. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Nordic Consulting Partners, and we are, as we do each month, uh, looking at news you can use and various uh, insights into what's gone on in the previous month. Craig, thanks for joining me today. And I'm excited to be here, as always. So uh, let's kick off, uh, as uh, we should. I think we've continued to do so. We haven't really avoided it for the last... uh, I don't know how many months we've still got COVID. It seems like COVID is uh, exploding. I think the numbers are actually higher than they've been in at, at many of the points during the pandemic. In you know some of the major times, we've got better treatments. Uh, we've got people that are vaccinated, and at this point, there is a view: if you haven't had it, just wait. I can certainly attest to that since I've been unfortunate. Uh, It hit our family. Um, I contact traced it. It was uh, the result of a a visit to a restaurant. Um, My wife and I both caught it. We got varying degrees, but uh, uh, I felt like uh, Terminator, uh, the T2 in uh, T2, when uh, Arnie smashed him with the uh, big truck and he exploded into lots of little pieces. That's how hard it hit me. That sounds um, that sounds uh, pleasant. So it's it sounds like you uh, you had a pretty good case of it. You weren't questioning whether or not you were sick. No, there was no question. Uh, I could see it very clearly in my uh, test. Uh, I I home tested. Uh, unfortunately, it all sort of unfolded at the weekend, which made for a slightly more challenging. Uh, approach to getting treatment and made me respect what I've seen in New York uh, in the last uh, several weeks. They've uh, created some mobile clinics that drive around um, and are equipped to both test and importantly from a diagnostic standpoint, I think antigen tests aren't considered, uh, at least not ones that are self-administered at home, uh, to be diagnostic. So you have to have a PCR test and then actually having Paxlovid and treatment available for patients that are diagnosed so that you can go to these uh, mobile clinics, be seen, tested, and uh, depart with treatment, which I have to say was not something I was able to navigate uh, in my local area. And I didn't get packs of it. And I can tell you the eight or nine days of misery that I endured, I'm sure would have been slightly shorter as a result of this, but wasn't. So I wish I had. Can you explain to me how exactly you reported your positive test to the public health department so that they were aware uh, that you had this disease and could properly account for how many people are sick? Just go into very gory detail, Dr. Nick, about how how are people supposed to report this information to their, to their health Well, department? so this I guess might that... might be a sarcastic question. No, I I think that's a, a, a good question. In fact, it depends very much on the state. Uh, my particular state has a whole text messaging uh, system uh, that is designed uh, to allow you to communicate uh, your status. In fact, I, I had this when I was uh, returning from overseas when we had to test. 
and that was tracked and I would get messages uh, from the system to say, uh, are you okay? Unfortunately, what they seemed to fail to understand was at some point they needed to switch them off. <laughs> so so I personally had to switch them off and mute them. Um, in my particular instance, I did, I, I, I did perform my civil duty and that I did get tested at one of the uh, departmental sites with a PCR test uh, as a confirmation, in part because I felt like I needed that from a uh, clinical standpoint, because my antigen test and a picture of it wouldn't suffice for me to satisfy a requirement at some point uh, in the future to say, have you or have you not? So I did. Interestingly, subsequent to that, I didn't receive any text messages uh, follow up. That could have been me because I suppressed them. So they may be disappearing into the uh, spam folder. I'm just not sure. Well, I, you know, uh, um, I am glad to hear you did that. I would I would argue that most of us do not do that. Um, most of us would probably just take the rapid strep, rapid strep. There's my pediatric background. The um, the rapid test and uh, whether or not it's when it's positive, just uh, um, deal with that and, and hopefully isolate. Uh, that's part of the problem is that we don't really know how many people actually have COVID. Right? We're we're guessing. We used to know. Um, with some certainty, because the only way to find out was to go to the drugstore or go to a lab, and all of those were um, uniformly reported uh, to the public health department and then hopefully sent off to the CDC so that we had numbers that we could compare and contrast. Right now, really, our best bet is, is unfortunately, looking in, in the sewers, um, or, or I don't know if it's unfortunately or fortunately, but, uh, you know, looking at uh, wastewater um, and and assessing how much virus is in there um, tends to be actually predictive of outbreaks. And so um, that is one way uh, it, of, of kind of gauging where we are. But I think one of the benefits, is it's a double-edged sword, right? Now you can test when you don't need to stand in line or wait for an appointment. Um, so you know very quickly with some certainty. But the, the downside is once you find out that you're positive, you just deal with it. And and, um, and, you, and so we don't really know how many people are getting sick. You know, I, it's interesting you bring up wastewater because I think it's it's uh, unfortunately we didn't capitalize enough on that. I saw some great value propositions. We've seen it for other instances for the cases of tracking uh, opioid uh, abuse. You can actually look at wastewater and uh, look for those uh, metabolites in uh, cities and uh, areas. And, you know, the more granular you get, the better you could get in terms of predicting. But one of the things that really strikes me, and, I, you know, I, it's an N of two in our family, um, but it was clear from the antigen test, I could see that I had a very big dose of this virus, at least my body had it inside, because I was showing a very positive reaction on the antigen test. It appeared very quickly and it was a real solid line. It was, hello, I'm here. Whereas um, in the case of my wife, um, actually in the first test that we did when she definitely was symptomatic, it was really vague, you know, you know, not even sure it was there. And it took a day. And when she did it, every time it would take eight, nine, 10, 11 minutes before the line would really, you know, you go, yeah, I, I, I do think it's there. And that is an indication of the viral load. And I, I had far worse symptoms. So 
what we get from that wastewater is people that are excreting more of the virus, we know we're going to have more symptomology and more people with the disease. So it, it, it's very clear that there are some opportunities to benefit from all of this science. But as you rightly point out, we, we haven't learned a lot of things, which brings me to monkeypox, the latest in our series of diseases. Are you worried, Craig? I'm, I, I think I'm worried less about the specifics of, of monkeypox than I am worried about the evidence that we have learned nothing uh, from the last two years and that um, precious few people are, are getting monkeypox right now. And uh, um, the vast majority of people that get it um, do not die from it and don't require hospitalization. And so it's, in the big scheme of things, it's much smaller. What concerns me is, yeah, what have we learned? What what <laughs> what lessons have we learned from this global pandemic, which uh, is still going on clearly, but really um, has affected the the entire world and, and affected everyone. Um, and now we've got another another virus that shouldn't be here that is here, uh, and, and we seem to be unable to respond quickly from a government standpoint. Uh, to to get the right information out to people to and of course you know science develops and we learn things but monkeypox is something we've known about it is not a novel virus like the um, coronavirus was You'll remember that we didn't have a name for it we just called it the, the new the new coronavirus yeah we know about monkeypox we actually have a vaccine for it it's a combination monkeypox smallpox vaccine and and yet <laughs> despite all of that uh, we we seem to be repeating the same thing, same problem. And so what what I'm very concerned about is well, what happens with the next with the next virus uh, that we've never seen before? Um, will we just repeat this over and over the cycle of let's pretend it's not there, let's um, let's not get out information that that uh, as soon as we get it because it might be confusing. Let's not if we know we have ways of from a public health standpoint of of decreasing the transmission, let's not take those uh, because some people might not want to wear a mask. It just, it, yeah. So, so yeah, here we go again, monkeypox. Hopefully, given the fact that we have a vaccine, there's some treatment, um, there's some research going on, although generally it's, um, uh, there's no definitive treatment. You just kind of go through it. And, and um, it's, it's more difficult to transmit clearly than, um, your traditional respiratory virus. So this is more typically uh, very close contact. Um, so, you know, walking next to someone, unlikely to get monkeypox, quite likely uh, to get uh, specifically uh, to, you know, to get COVID, much more likely to do that. Um, so that's the good news about monkeypox. But the bad news is, boy, it does learn like it seems like we haven't, we haven't learned too many lessons. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the shame of this is that we have so many outstanding individuals with tremendous insights. I, I, I certainly track and follow a number of these people who've, you know, continued to educate, follow the science. And despite that, we seem to struggle at a national level that, uh, you know, has troubled you and I both, and I think many of our colleagues in the healthcare profession who feel like, you know, as you said, here we go again, but instead of being really prepared and ready and feeling like we had a, a good playbook, 
it's uh, it's back to square one almost, which is just a, a tragedy that shouldn't be the case. For those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm talking to Craig Joseph. He is the chief medical officer at Nordic Consulting Partners. We're uh, focusing on news from uh, the past month and uh, just talking about monkeypox and um, the fact that, you know, our struggle is more about the response than actually the concern of the disease, given that we have uh, some reasonable uh, vaccines and also, uh, you know, potentially understand it well uh, to be able to prevent it. Before we sort of move off the, the COVID uh, discussion, I think it's worth um just bringing up long COVID, I've uh, continued to see, I think, you know, increasing numbers of reports uh, of sort of relatively widespread, I'd say, uh, of the order of between 5 to 20% of people suffering from long COVID in a variety of extents. And I've seen it very severe, particularly around cardiac symptoms, but it's a wide range uh, across the board. What, what are you seeing? Well, I think it's the same. You know, I, I don't think there's any question now. Uh, there's lots of questions. Um, what percentage of people who get COVID are going to have long COVID? What exactly do we mean when we say long COVID? How long will it last? How can we... Lots of... Uh, those are all great questions. The, the, the question that's no longer there is, is there such a thing as long COVID? We, we now know that some significant portion of people who get... COVID are going to have symptoms for a long time. And that means months to years at this point. And we don't really know what to do about that. So I think some of the research has shown that the more severe uh, your symptoms were, um, the more likely you are to have uh, symptoms for a longer time, right? So if you were hospitalized, then you're at a higher risk than if you were not hospitalized. And so we there are some patterns that are there, but boy, what, what is this and, and why do people get it? And some of them seemingly get better and some of them seemingly don't get better. And it's um, it's kind of horrible to, to, to have that out there and to, to know so little. Uh, but to see people who, who were previously uh, running races and, and now are having trouble walking across the street. And all they said was, well, I, I got COVID. And that's the only thing that, that made any sense. And so certainly lots of research going on into it. And, um, and, and I think the good thing is that people are taking it seriously and have for a while. This is not some uh, you know, fringe group of people who are, who are complaining and, and we can't uh, validate their, their science and symptoms. We most certainly can. We know it's there, but we don't know why lots of theories and we don't know what to, to do to, to make it better at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, genuine, serious concern. It's going to add to the already stressed out system with additional symptomology, uh, wide spectrum. I, I think, interestingly, you're right about the severity, but I've also seen people with mild to almost no symptoms of the actual disease still end up. So, you know, our understanding is very limited at this point. I've seen a number of studies that are trying to look at predictive factors um, even trying to use some of the machine learning uh, capabilities that we have to apply it to this data set that we don't see patterns in, but maybe there are patterns that we're not able to uh, pull out. So um, obviously a, a potential to maybe identify some of the reasons, which 
um, elegantly, I think, I'm just going to say, uh, brings us to uh, the study that was published that I thought was just uh, quite brilliant in its uh, approach, assessing the clinical robustness of digital health startups. And it was a, a cross-sectional observational analysis. It was uh, uh, published just recently. They looked at digital health companies uh, that have been around for, on average, 7.7 years. And they developed a score. It was a bit like red light, green light uh, kind of uh, approach um, to see how clinically robust uh, these companies were um, and what their uh, value proposition was uh, based on some, I think, really interesting metrics, I think relevant in my view, measured by the number of regulatory filings. So how much have they done in those spaces? Because if you're really a digital health company, I think you have to file uh, to, to gain approval. Otherwise, you're a consumer product. And that, you know, in some cases, is just sort of uh, kicking the can down the, uh, the trail a little. Uh, clinical trials and indeed public uh, data. But from, from a, a, a results standpoint, what really stood out to me uh, was the average number of public claims uh, was about 1.3. Um, the medium was one, and there was no correlation whatsoever observed between the robustness and the number of claims. Um, and the, the upshot of this was, for all of the money that we've invested in uh, digital health, I don't think we're seeing the value. But maybe you have a different view. Well, I, uh, unlike you, I, I believe everything that I, that I read. And so I don't understand the question. No, I, you know, I, we're, we're in, in, in the infancy of, of, uh, of, of digital health. And um, it's hard. I guess what I'm looking at, from, if I'm looking at it from the company's standpoint, right, they, they, um, they have some runway, they have some money that they got from, from high-risk investors, and they they certainly want to show that they're that this um, the tools that they're creating are, are helpful. Uh, but science moves quite slowly, and uh, we've learned that, right? I think that most um, scientists and hopefully uh, many clinical folks realize how slowly how slowly science uh, figures out what's going on. Uh, the the rest of the population hadn't until the last two years, and uh, that's when they figured. Um, I think there was a lot of eye opening, and so this is the this is uh, the this is the same. I, I it's certainly not good to say that your your software tool solves a problem that you can't uh, prove that it does. Um, and so I think we have to take all of their all of the many claims, um, pretty much for everything that's not done in a in an independent peer reviewed fashion um, with a grain of salt, and and so. Uh, sure. Uh, does your um, does your app actually you know predict people who are going to have these symptoms, or does it actually improve depression, or or you know improve um, whatever it is that it's trying to help resolve? And, you know, I, I think it, it, what this study was doing was looking at um, more standard ways of of proof, as opposed to well, I work for the company and we surveyed a thousand people uh, and 800 of them liked the product that they paid for um, and 200 of them you know, didn't, right? And so the scientists might have some problems with that study in, in terms of how it was sourced and, and how it was reviewed and how it was organized and, 
So that would never make a, you couldn't independently prove that that, that worked. So long and short, um, I think we just have to, you know, uh, apply the, the rules of, of caveat emptor and uh, buyer beware. And so know that what you're getting when you get some of these uh, tools, the software or hardware or whatever it is, that uh, the science probably isn't clear. And uh, this thing might help you and it might not. Um, and and move, we have to move forward because a lot of these things are going to ultimately help in some way. And I think we know that. So it's not like they're, it's a, it's a, um, these are charlatans who are, who are trying to take our money. Although I suspect some of them, some of them are, but most of them are not. And um, it's an interesting study, uh, you know, looking at the, it's again, to take all of the work that a company does and to boil it down to one number between one and 10, uh, that's hard. And, and, uh, but the distribution was not good. Looking at the, the numbers were much, <laughs> the frequency was much, much uh, higher on the, on the low ends of the scores. Yeah, I, and it raises an issue that, um, you know, is quite contextual in part because I happened to catch the uh, dropout, uh, which was uh, John Carew's uh, book on uh, Theranos, uh, dramatized, uh, I forget which uh, particular uh, group put this out. I think it was six or seven episodes. Uh, it was very compelling. And, you know, obviously, as you rightly say, caveat emptor, you have to take it with a grain of salt, given that, you know, there's certainly some poetic license with some of it. But what I found really interesting about it, and I think it's relevant here, you know, there's there's this real sort of fake it till you make it. You, you know, you, you need to sort of show progress to get the funding. And, you know, there was a little bit of that. And, and what I noticed in this, and I read the book, which I thought was excellent, you know, the expose that John Carrey, you know, worked very thoughtfully on to sort of drive this all uh, to, to uh, a conclusion, was the point at which they broke bad. And for me, in the, the, uh, the, the evidence that was presented, it was the point where they were going to present, they had actually successfully run the test with their device and they flew to Switzerland and in the flight over and in the hotel room prepping for the meeting the following day, they could not get it to work again, despite being on the line all night long, uh, you know, trying to work through all of those errors. And they had this critical meeting with a drug company that was, you know, going to be essential for forward progress. And that was, uh, you know, a small fake it. We have done it. We're faking it this instance. It was a little bit concealed. And, you know, what I've seen with a number of these things is that, you know, the intention at the origin was not, we're, we're, you know, we're going to conceal, whatever. They broke bad because they needed that success or felt like they did. And if they hadn't had it, maybe would have imploded. Who knows? Um, and, you know, I, I, I think my sympathy a little bit with these companies, because I think there's a lot of that that goes on. There's, you know, genuine Certainly the folks that I have the fortune of interviewing that talk about some of these things, some never make it out of, of the sort of laboratory. But, you know, this is this is progress. And, you know, as you rightly point out, we've got we're going to see it. I mean, we've we've seen it with some of these things. So for me, I, I thought it was interesting. I think it's helpful. But, you know, it, what needs to happen is people have to have a really critical eye and look for that. Unfortunately, we're not all well 
well enough trained with the statistical analysis, the ability to look at, you know, causation, correlation, um, you know, and overcome our own personal biases. I've got my own. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a geek. I want all of this stuff to work. Oh yes, that's fantastic. I'm 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 into the future and loving it. But uh, I try and temper myself. Um, but I, I think fascinating study. I think at least you know shines a light on something that you've got to be at least a little bit concerned about. Um, unfortunately, as usual, we've run out of time. So it just remains for me to thank you, as I do each and every month, um, uh, for joining me on the show. Craig, thanks for joining me. Or to our next one. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. <laughs>